couple questions that have hit um, our U version. Again, um, the mine is on U version. It's a it's an app that you can get on your on your phone. Once you go to the U version, once you get the app, you go to U version. You type in Cornerstone Chandler, and then that'll bring up all the different activities. You go to the mine. And then on there, we will have um, tonight's scripture, um, notes, um, questions, prayer requests. Um, And so two questions came out over the last week, so we'll try to answer those before we get going um, tonight. The first question involves um, angels. And do angels still appear today? And that's a good question. Um, Angels, we obviously, we've talked a lot about angels throughout um, the book of Revelation. We're going to talk about some more tonight. And so do the angels, are, are angels alive and well today? And the answer is yes. Yeah, angels are alive and well today. Um, they still have a ministry. Their ministry is a little different than what you might have seen in the Old Testament. Um, but the uh, angels still are in the ministry of protecting, um, pointing people towards God. Now, as far as um, some of the TV shows you've seen and all that, it's probably a little different than the biblical context of angels. Can we pray to angels? No, please don't do that. The Bible is very clear on we, we, we do not pray to angels. Can we command the angels to do our bidding? And as much as we would like to do that to former bosses and all that, we cannot command angels to do our bidding. Even in Jesus' name, they are, they are strictly um, under God's control. But yeah, angels are still um, alive and well and, and doing things. The Bible talks about um, even entertaining angels. So um, yeah, they're still going. Um, and the other side of angels, the fallen angels, demons, um, we've talked about that quite extensively as well. They are still alive and going and doing Um, the bidding of their father, Satan. Okay, the other question was, oh, the seven years of the tribulation, is that consecutively? Are there seven consecutive years of tribulation? Or are they just seven years that that can be just popped in? And and the the answer is yes, it's seven consecutive literal um, years um, that we're talking about here. Um, It is not ages and it's not um, separated years. So, all right, so tonight we're going to go turn to Revelation chapter 14. Uh, Many of you um, have gotten um, a copy of the um, timeline, so that's floating around here somewhere. And we also have another handout that we're going to talk about tonight, um, the Bema Seat of Christ um, and the Five Crowns. So those are out there. Actually, Mike's passing those around. Um, So Revelation 14, we are towards the end of the tribulation, as I've said, towards the end of the seven-year tribulation. Um, we are getting ready to unleash the final um, judgments, the, the seven bowls or the seven vials, depending on, on what um, translation um, you might have. And that happens at the very end. Last week, we introduced um, the false prophet. We introduced the Antichrist. And, of course, we already, um, Satan already made his introduction. And so now we're seeing what, what's happening towards the end. So let's go ahead and read through, and we're going to, See if we can catch up here. Okay, Revelation chapter 14. And let's read the first five verses and then we'll pause there. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. 
No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remain virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered a, as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. So we've got a reappearing of the 144,000. So John, who is the, the writer, who is the one that's um, seeing this, um, behold, there, there he sees the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? Jesus. Okay, so he sees Jesus, and Jesus is standing on Mount Zion, and he's standing with who? The 144,000. Now, this was um, several weeks ago, a little over a month ago, we talked about the 144,000 and who we believe the 144,000 are. We believe that these, this is the nation of Israel that after the church was um, um, raptured or caught away, um, that God has specifically set aside 144,000 that would turn their life over to Christ. Um, they would be witnesses throughout the seven years of the tribulation. We are now seeing Jesus standing with the 144,000 who lived their witness throughout the um, seven years, who God protected um, through the seven years. They have been, they have the mark on their forehead. Now, this isn't the mark of the beast that we talked about last week, but whose name is on their forehead? Okay, God's, yeah. So he, his name is on their forehead. And now we are at the very end, again, of the tribu tribulation. And as we look at this, we see, we see some um, words that I, I wanted to pause because um, I, I don't want to just run over these words and assume everybody understands this. And we, we see the word redeemed in there, that have been redeemed from the earth. Let's talk about this whole concept of what, what it means to be adopted, to be or to redeemed, and to be saved. Okay? So as Christians, and actually, go with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians is about 80% of the way through your Bible. It's right after 2 Corinthians, right before Ephesians. Paul wrote this, um, this letter to uh, the church of Galatia. This was a church plant. So Galatians chapter 3. And let me see where I want to start here. Let's go ahead and start in verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For you have all, or for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are of Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is this. As long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to the guardians and trustees until the time is set by the father. So also, 
when we were underage, we were in slavery until the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So in in Revelation chapter 14, we see how God has redeemed um, Israel. But the question often, well, how, how, how do we get redeemed now? How... How, all those people that were raptured, how, how did they turn their life over to Christ? What, what does that mean? What does it mean to be adopted as a son? And it's different than how we um, view adoption today. Today we view adoption as, as there, there, there's an orphan, and, and we go in there, and we, we go through a whole bunch of rigmarole, and um, we get chosen um, to be adoptive parents, and we go through the adoption process, and we take that child home, whether they're a baby or whether... Um, whatever age, and we bring them in, and they become part of our family. Adoption in the Roman world was quite a bit different. What would happen there was, this wasn't, this wasn't parents who didn't have children, and so they had to go necessarily and, and find orphans. The idea of adoption in, in Roman law was basically, if a man had no children or had no heir, let me change that, had no heir to carry on his name, he can go and adopt an heir. And quite often, this wasn't necessarily an orphan. This was someone who would carry on his name. And when you were adopted in Roman rule, there were several things that happened. The first, the first thing is the person that was adopting you was called the pater, okay, or the pater familius. Um, this is where we get the word paternal, Okay. And he would go and he would choose someone who he wants to not only carry on his name, but someone who would carry on his work. And that person would be adopted by him. And so five things happened in Roman culture that uh, if you were adopted. Number one, you were given a future. To be adopted in Roman culture was to be given a future. And to be adopted by someone of royalty or a senator or someone of great wealth was like hitting the lottery. Okay, so you were given a future. The second thing is you were forgiven of your old debts. If you were adopted as an heir, if you were adopted by the pater, all your debts were forgiven. 100% of them were forgiven. If a debtor came up to you and say, hey, you owe, you owe me 100 bucks," or you owe, you just point to the pater. You, you'd point and say, take it up with him. Another thing that would happen would, would be that you were given security. As a pater would, would go through the adoption, he would send a mediator to purchase you from your family. Or purchase you from your slave owner. Or purchase you from your debtor. And what would happen, this mediator would come in and bring the money and pay the, pay the ransom, pay off the debt in full, whatever the dowry was, and you would then have a new security you would no longer ever owe debt. You are now under the, the umbrella of your pater. The fourth thing that would happen is you'd be given a new name. He would bring you in, and he'd bring you in front of not only the Senate, but he'd bring you in front of um, his family, and you would be introduced by your new name. 
Everybody would then say welcome, and they would say your name and your new name, and this would go on, this whole process. And from that day forward, your old name is completely forgotten, and you now had a brand new name. And then you would have a new freedom. In many cases, some of these, um, these heirs were adopted, and they were young. And so one of the things that was happening is the pater would end up dying before the, before the child was of age to carry on the family line. So they would put someone called the tutela. This was a guardian. And they would have the child or the person would have to answer to this person until they became full of age. And the, the tutela was their guardian, and they had to obey every single piece of the law under that person until they became of age, and then they got to inherit what was promised to them. So as Paul is sitting here, and he's, he's, he's telling these people, you used to live under the law. You used to live under this tutela. Okay, he's comparing it to adoption. You used to live under this, but now the time has come where you are now of age, and God has sent the mediator, to pay the ransom for you. Jesus is the mediator. Jesus didn't bring money to pay off your debt. He brought something way more valuable. He brought his blood. He gave his life as the ransom for your debt. You have now been bought at a price. So now we see where all these terms and terminology throughout the Bible are coming from. It's this adoption process. You were bought at, um, you were bought, um, at a price. Your debt was paid for. Jesus is your mediator, and God is your father, your Abba father, your pater. You now have security. You now have a future. You now have a new name. No longer do you have to pay for past debts. No longer are you enslaved, but you are a child of God. And no one, and in Roman culture, no one could ever take you away. And this was a big fear Because in Roman culture, children were sold into slavery all the time. Someone owed a debt. Let's see, which child am I going to sell to this person until the debt's paid for? And then they would buy them back. And then they would, that child, children could be sold three, four, five times in their childhood. Could you imagine the heart of a child as he continues to get sold in to pay for debts? Well, once a pater gives you his name and your debts are, you could never, and according to Roman law, you could never be sold again. This pater, when he agrees to put his name on you, you are actually more secure than his biological children. You cannot be sold again. And so God is saying, you are secure. You will never, you can never lose what you have been given. And so that is what it means to be redeemed. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to be adopted by God. It is a powerful, powerful statement. And when it says you have been justified, it means that your debt has been paid once and for all. The penalty of your sin has been paid once and for all. This is the gospel, and we'll get to that in a second. By the way, how many watched the Billy Graham special this week? Anybody? If you did not watch Billy Graham's special, I would encourage you to YouTube it. It is, it is a powerful message by, by a man that 
that is one of the giants in Christianity, not only of the last century, but of all time. So I would encourage you to watch it. So here we have um, the idea of, uh, of people being justified. So we've got, we already know the church has been justified, and because they're justified, they can never lose their salvation. So once the Holy Spirit was taken away at the beginning of the tribulation, the church was raptured with it. Now we have 144,000 that, and we, we can't be dogmatic of how this happens, but the Bible says 144,000 were set aside, and basically they turned their life to God. And for seven years in the tribulation, they became the witness, the evangelists throughout the tribulation, leading people to Christ. And so now we get to this point where Jesus is standing with his redeemed elect of Israel. So let's, let's keep going forward. Revelation chapter 14. Verse 6. Oh, and by the way, when it says they were blameless and, and they were without, it's because they were under the name of Jesus who was blameless and who was out without fault. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and we come in front of the judgment seat, which we'll talk about in a couple minutes, we are, we are viewed as Jesus. Remember, all our sins are gone from east as to west. So, verse 6. Then I saw another fly, angel flying in midair, and he had an, the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. The second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and, the, and its image and receives the mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. They will, there will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people God of God who keep his commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, the spirit says they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. All right, so we we get into the second part. We see the judgment coming. Again, we're at the very end of the tribulation. Over the next couple weeks and over the next couple chapters, we're going to start introducing this whole idea of Babylon and, and, and the adulterous woman and all this kind, all this kind of um, um, symbolism. And we'll talk about the final seven bowls and vials of judgment. But here the angel is talking about God's judgment. And he's talking about not the ones who have received God, but those who decided to receive Satan. And basically, the way you receive Satan is by not receiving God. 
And so we talked about last week the mark of the beast and those who receive it on their forehead or on, on their hand. They can never turn back from that. And so we're seeing what happens to those who die apart from Jesus Christ. Okay? So this, again, is those in the tribulation. We get a description of what hell will be like. We get an ominous description. The scariest part for me is not the, the burning, not the torment, not the pain. The scariest part for me is the forever and ever. That's the part that just hurts my heart. It, it, it scares me. Not for myself, because I, I know I have Jesus in my heart. I know I've been sealed. But it burdens me for those that I believe don't have Jesus. It scares me for those I believe don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now, again, God's not a vindictive God. God's not a God that says he loves to see this. God is a patient God. God is a God of chances, not wanting anyone to be separated. And we see this gospel. What is the gospel? Well, we talked a little bit about what it means to be justified, what, 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 what it means to be adopted. As we are Christians and, and we say we, we want to proclaim the gospel, what is the gospel? If anyone ever asks you what the gospel is, say turn to, to 1 Corinthians 15. So turn to 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, let's start in um, verse 1. And this again, this is Paul talking to his brothers and sisters in the church of Corinth, another one of his church plants. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, and gospel means good news, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached, I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I have received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And here we go. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. Again, if you watch the Billy Graham, his basically his last message, most likely, you heard him lay out the gospel. It's all about Jesus. It's about the cross. It's about the blood of Jesus, that Jesus came down to earth. God became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus died on the cross. He gave himself up. He paid our debt. He was buried and he rose again on the third day, conquering sin and death. All this according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. That's what we, we need to tell people. 
It's all about Jesus. And a lot of times, us as the church, we add so many other things to the gospel. But that's the gospel. And so as we get to this final part, we see those who have been redeemed, those who have accepted Jesus Christ, and those who still stand with their hand up against God, acting independently of God's plan for their lives. It's at this moment that, that I believe in uh, and many theologians believe in the tribulation where there is the last chance. This is the last opportunity. Because after this, the seventh trumpet is going to be blown, and the final seven bulls are going to be unleashed, and those are quick, and then it's done. This is the last opportunity. And look as we, as we keep going in verse 14. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of fire came out from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung its sickle and to the earth gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia, which is about 180 miles. Wow. We have a description of Jesus, the Lamb, standing in judgment at the end of tribulation. We have those who have turned to Jesus, and we have those who stand against him. And we have a depiction of a moment where the harvest is about to happen. Now, this isn't a harvest where all oh, the harvest is... This is, a bad, this is a bad harvest. This is a harvest of those who have turned against Christ, who have rejected Him, who have remained in their separated states. In Matthew 24, you see a, a passage, and Jesus told a story of the, the sheep and the goats and how there would be a separation. I believe this is one and the same. The sheep on one side, the goats on the other. Those who turned to Christ, those who turned against Christ. I believe this is one and the same. Now we look at some of the um, descriptive elements of this judgment. And this whole idea of trampling in a wine press. Well, in the Hebrew culture, a wine press was a symbol of judgment. And we see this as Jesus is trampling in judgment those who are against him. 
Now, some ask, well, we go from symbolism to something that looks awful literal. We go from symbolism, this whole idea of clusters of grapes being thrown into a wine press, and then all of a sudden we see it change into blood flowing out as high as the horse's bridle. This is most likely um, um, an example or um, a depiction of the, the final battle. This whole idea of Armageddon, which we'll get to um, in future weeks. But it's basically, um, we, we, we talked in weeks past about, well, well, all these armies are going to rally against Jesus and it's going to be a big old battle. No, that, that's not a battle. That's done. Last chance. Are you for me? Are you against me? So we have the 144,000 of Israel. What about those who accept Jesus, the, the, the Gentiles, or those who are not part of the 144,000, but are the, the outcome of the 144,000's evangelism throughout the stuff? They would be there too, and I think they would also be uh, considered part of the sheep on the side of those who chose God. Many of those who accept Jesus throughout the tribulation are going to end up probably dying of a martyr's death, are going to end up um, being killed for their belief. So now I want to transition into this whole idea of the Bema Seat. This whole idea of, of this Bema Seat judgment. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians, or back to 1 Corinthians, and we'll go back to chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter three. And let's start, let's do verse eleven. Let me see, make sure I'm right. Yep. Okay. First Corinthians chapter three, verse eleven. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that's already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burnt up, the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So as we close out tonight over the next um, 10 minutes, I want to talk about the different judgments because we've now gotten this whole idea of judgment. And I want to make sure there's no confusion over what judgments are where. So there are a couple judgments that are, are talked about. The one we talked about tonight was this judgment that happens at the end of the tribulation. This whole idea of Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 29, where Jesus will separate the goats and the sheep. You got the descriptive, the, the, the sickle, and Jesus standing on a cloud. Um, that judgment happens at the end of the tribulation, and that is a judgment of those who were in the tribulation. That is a judgment of those who were in the tribulation. We have the great white throne judgment, which we'll get to um, in a couple weeks ahead. This is a, a, a judgment that happens at the end of the millennium. So we go from rapture, seven years, the end of the tribulation, Jesus comes, the second coming. Then we have a thousand-year reign. 
which we'll get to in future weeks. And then we have the great white throne judgment. Okay? And then we have in Scripture, in one we just read, called the Bema Seat, or the Judgment Seat of Christ. The Judgment Seat of Christ happens somewhere within the tribulation, and it is only a judgment of those who were either raptured or those who had Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior before they died, or as, as they died. So the Judgment Seat of Christ is those is a judgment for Christians. Okay, so let me talk about the difference between the great white throne and the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. The great white throne is a judgment, basically, of a condemning. This is a penalty phase. Those who stand in front of the great white throne have already been condemned. They have already been condemned. And now they receive the penalty. And that penalty is eternal separation from Christ. If you are standing in front of the great white throne judgment, you are eternally separated. This is a penalty phase judgment, and it happens at the end of the millennium. The Bema seat judgment also has Jesus sitting upon the Bema seat, the judgment seat, but this is not like a trial, this is not like a penalty phase. This is a judgment seat, much like you would see in the Olympics. And those who stand in front of the Bema seat, or the judgment seat of Christ, are those believers, those people in Christ, and they will be judged not on things they have done wrong, but things they have done in Christ for him. This is a rewarding judgment. Back in the day, I remember used to watch the Olympics and, and even the Winter Olympics. And I'll admit it, I might lose my man card. I used to love watching figure skating and watching the judges. And they come out and they have, they have all the, all the, the ratings. And, oh, they, they just touched down here. They didn't quite do this or they landed short or whatever. Or even the gymnastics. Oh, well, that docked a 10th. What? Well, it docked a 10th. Trust me, her, her finger wasn't like that. And, and all these little things that they deduct. And then at the end, we see those who excelled had what? The gold, silver, bronze, or whatever they were rewarded. Well, Paul talks about in many different occasions of running the race. Running this race so that we will receive what? Yeah, a a crown. Not one like a wreath like the ancient Olympians would have that would wilt away, but a, a crown that would last forever. And throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, there are many different crowns that are mentioned as possible rewards for those people who accepted Christ and what they did since. If you have this handout, and again, sorry, some of you need magnifying glasses. There's five crowns that are mentioned in in, in the Bible. Now, this doesn't mean there are only five crowns. There might be more, but these are five crowns that seem to be mentioned. One is the incorruptible crown. 1 Corinthians 9, 25 through 27. And this is re- awarded for those who are striving for the ministry. This is awarded for those who are striving for the ministry. The incorruptible crown. Some would call it the victor's crown. 
those who have disciplined their bodies and brought their bodies into subjection and had self-control. Those who were able to avoid temptation. Those who were able to endure. That is the incorruptible crown or the victor's crown. There's another one called the crown of life. And we see that referenced in Revelation chapter 2. Those are awarded to those who are faithful until death. Some call this the martyr's crown, the crown of life. Now, there's a debate whether you actually have to die a martyr's death to receive this crown. We don't know. There's a couple other passages that talk about the martyr's crown. James 1, 12, 2 Timothy 2, 15. We see the crown of glory. It's referenced in 1 Peter 5, 2 through 4. Awarded for feeding and being an example to the flock. Some of people call this, or some have called this, the elder's crown or the pastor's crown. This is awarded to those who are able to lead the flock and to feed the flock. Whether you have to be an official pastor or not, don't know. This is the crown of glory. The crown of righteousness awarded to those who love is appearing. This one always was intriguing to me. The crown is for the believers who were ready and waiting for the return of Jesus. All those who had loved his appearing. And then we have the crown of rejoicing. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19-20. Awarded to those who win the loss to Christ. Some call this the soul winner's crown. So these are five different crowns that are mentioned to those Christians that will be awarded at the Bema seat. And we just read a passage that talked about there will be some that will will present at the judgment seat and it will be like hay or straw. And it will go, "That, that was nothing. Thanks for the effort. And then there will those that build on a strong foundation. And those people will be rewarded. So here's what we need to understand about the judgment seat of Christ. Again, it is not a condemning. Because even if you did nothing, even if you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and died a second later, even if you did nothing or you just lived a life and and you believed in Jesus and you, you authentically accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, You will not be condemned. The great white throne is where you are condemned. The Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ is where you're rewarded. Now, what are these crowns? What, what do we do with these crowns? We don't know. We'll talk about it a little bit. We, many believe that these crowns will be, be a, a authority or these crowns will be roles that, that the believers will have as they rule in the millennium with Jesus Christ. We don't know. And then at some point, we see um, the reference that we will be casting our crowns back to Jesus. What foundation are we building upon? What foundation are we building our life upon? When we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we were adopted, we were given a new name, a new future, security, There's a reason why God didn't just 
take us up to heaven right then. It's because we had a, we had a job to do. And from that moment until the moment the rapture happens or, or, or we die, whatever, we have been called, we have been given a plan to fulfill. How well are we doing that? What foundations are you building in your family? What foundations are you building in your workplace? What foundations are you building um, in, in your ministries? I believe there's going to be many ministries and many people that, that, ha- that have done great things in the world's eyes, but when they get to heaven and they stand in front of the judgment seat, it's going to be like straw. It's going to be like a waste of time. I think it behooves us to look at the descriptions of each of the five crowns and what they're rewarded for. And maybe to pay attention to what has been omitted. What are some things that we as Christians fight for, strive for, that apparently there's no reward for? The one thing we know that every single person on the face of the earth, both past, present, and future, will stand in judgment in front of Jesus Christ. Those who have turned their back on Jesus and have never accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior will stand at the great white throne. Those who accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they are now in Christ, will stand face to face and will answer for everything, even the hidden things. It's the hidden things that scare us. The things we thought were secret. Everything will be laid to bear. And we will be rewarded for those that stand the test of the fire. And we will suffer loss for those things that get burned away. But the cool thing is, those who stand at that judgment have eternal life with Jesus Christ forever and ever. And that's powerful. We're getting close to the end of the tribulation in this study. And then we're going to talk about the millennium, and then we're going to talk about eternity, heaven and hell. I want to make sure everyone understands that, again, and we say this probably every week, Revelation is about the revealing of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, that's what the entire Bible's about. It's the revealing of Jesus Christ. And at some point in our lives, some of us have already been at that point, some of us have yet to reach that point, we're going to have to make a decision. Much like Pilate did. What do I do with this man, Jesus? What do I do with him? If you're in here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're, maybe you're here and you're just, you're just researching, you're just taking it in, and that's great. That's what, that's what this is for. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. Look to Jesus. Ask the questions. There are no dumb questions. Ask questions. But for the majority in here, I would assume at the mine. We're in here because we want to dig into God's word. We want to understand what God's word means in our life. 
And that's, that's amazing. That's an incredible thing. And, and that's the beauty of the mind that we can get. And we have the freedom, veterans, thank you, to study God's word without fear of guards rushing in here. But I want to pose the question to those in here who are Christians. What foundation are you building upon? What are those things you are fighting for, that you are stressed for, that, you are, that you're giving all your energy to? When you stand in front of Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, is it going to be worth it? Is it going to be worth it? And I don't want to offend anybody, but as Graham said, the cross is offensive. There are even things in the church that we put, and I'm not talking about cornerstone, but that the church puts a lot of money towards that I'm not sure is even mentioned at the Bema seat. There are many things that we strive for, many causes that when we stand in front of the Bema seat and we see this whole idea of the separation, the thing that's going to pain me are those people that, for whatever, my laziness, my comfort, my whatever, that I did not tell about Jesus Christ. That's ultimately, that, that's going to be the thing I suffer. Knowing that maybe God put someone in my life to lead to Jesus and I fell short. I was more worried about this or that. Or Cause man, forever and ever, it's a tough thing. So next week, we're going to walk in and we're going to look at verse or chapter 15 and 16. We're going to put those two together. And we're going to try to figure out the symbolism in there. All this is also happening at the end. And we're now looking at past this whole separation of the sheep and the goats, past the whole sickle. Now it's just wrath. Now it's the final judgment. Now we're seeing what happens. And then the second coming, then the millennium. And then ultimately, hallelujah, forever and ever with Jesus Christ. So I want to open it up to some questions. Um, we have mics around and we have mics holding mics. That's a pretty cool thing. So anything out there? And again, you guys are open to email questions and all that. Um, um, and it, before we leave, I do want to remind you, sign up for India. Kenya is coming up this summer. Um, Jamaica. Um, those are powerful, powerful ways to go out and spread the word of God. Any questions out there? Oh, there's one. <laughs> so I was, don't ask. Oh, well, no one else is. I'll <laughs> okay. All right, this goes back to the 1 Corinthians 15 when you were reading, and you were talking about the gospel, uh -huh. the good news. So how many gospels are there as far as the good news? The good news, there is one gospel. So it's just that one. It is the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again. When we are baptized, we, we, we tell people, this is what I believe that Jesus died and he was buried and, and he rose again, that I myself am now in Christ and I am dying, burying, and being rose again in Christ. That is the gospel. There's no additives to that.
Okay? And that might cause some questions, by the way, in Matthew 24, where we say, well, doesn't it look like you have to have works to get to heaven? Because Jesus said, well, you didn't feed my people. You didn't do this and that. And again, when is that, when is that happening? That is happening during the tribulation. Right now, there is only one way to get to heaven. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets there except through him. He is the gospel. The fact that he died, that he was buried, and that he rose again, according to scriptures, he is our promised Messiah. And then if you look at um, Romans 10, 9 through 13, that's it. That is how we call on Jesus to be our Lord and Savior. You confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay? Anything else? All right. Let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you for each and every person in here. Heavenly Father, we look as we get towards the the final pieces of this prophecy, this book of Revelation, and we thank you again for the blessing that you give for those who read it. And Heavenly Father, I just pray that we understand that that uh, that it is Jesus, that He is the Lord. That he is the ultimate judge. Heavenly Father, I pray for those in here that maybe are still seeking. I pray that they see Jesus for who he is, the Lord of the universe, the creator God, who loved us so much. I pray that we see Jesus as the one who came to earth, who died for us, who was buried and rose again, taking on our sins. Heavenly Father, I pray for those that, that don't know him, that they will seek him, that they will honestly seek him, that they will ask every question that needs to be asked. And Heavenly Father, for those in here, myself included, that do know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, maybe we accepted Jesus last week, last year, 10 years ago. Heavenly Father, I, I pray that you... Give us wisdom to see things the way you see them, to see our life the way you see them, to see ourselves the way you see us, to not buy into the lies of Satan that say you're not good enough, that you can't do what God has called you to do. Give us courage to to live that life worthy of the call, to run that race worthy of the prize. Heavenly Father, I, I pray for for us who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, to do, give us the courage to do everything in our power to make sure there's not a single person in our sphere of influence that does not know the gospel. That does not know the gospel. Give us the courage, whether we tell them ourselves or whether we bring them to a place where they will hear it, give us the courage and the love to do so. And Heavenly Father, for those things that are stressing us out, for those things that we're spending our energy and spinning our wheels on, Heavenly Father, give us the wisdom to evaluate, are these things things that will survive the fire? Or are they pointless things that maybe we need to redirect? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you that Jesus is coming back. And that he is bringing eternity with him. And that we will live forever with the creator of the universe. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. It's in your precious name we pray. 
Amen. Hey, thank you again for coming tonight. Veterans, thank you so much. Um, Continue to bring friends. We're going to continue to talk about this whole idea of salvation. If you'd like to go to India, please talk to me. We've got to get those passports really quick. All right, bye-bye.